welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. This week, JF and I are coming to you live from the Indiana University Cinema in my hometown of Bloomington, Indiana. JF visited me for a few days the week before Halloween. During that week, we co-taught a seminar on Plato's Timaeus and speculative music alongside our intrepid assistant Meredith Michael. And a couple days after that, J.F. and I recorded an episode on the Timaeus, which we will be releasing in a couple of weeks. But the main business that week was recording a live show at the IU Cinema to accompany a screening of David Cronenberg's extremely weird 1983 horror film, Videodrome. The IU Cinema is one of the jewels in IU's crown, and it was a special honor to do a show there. We would like to give a big thank you to its director, Alicia Kozma, who scored a beautifully restored print of Videodrome for the occasion and is an all-round cool person. And also to Alicia's Jeeves-like staff. Since this was a live show, we didn't bother recapping the plot of Videodrome because we'd all just watched the movie together and that would have been weird. So here's the story. James Woods plays Max Wren the president of a small TV station that airs edgy, trashy, exploitative fare. But all anyone pitches him is period dramas sprinkled with a little softcore sex, and Max is bored. He's looking for more, something that'll really break through, he says. Something tough. Max finds what he's looking for, a pirate broadcast called Videodrome, meaning something like Video Circus or Video Arena, appropriately enough as we are soon to meet a mad media prophet, Brian Oblivion, who tells us, quote, The battle for the mind of North America will be fought in the video arena, the videodrome. The television screen is the retina of the mind's eye. Therefore, the television screen is a part of the physical structure of the brain. Therefore, whatever happens on the television screen emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. Therefore, Television is reality, and reality is less than television. The mysterious underground transmission that Max stumbles on has no plot and no characters. All it shows are scenes of torture and murder. Max marvels at its realism and uninhibited brutality and sets about trying to discover who is making it. At the same time, he begins seeing a masochistic woman named Nikki, played by Debbie Harry, who becomes tangled up in the Videodrome signal in increasingly surreal ways. So too does Max, who begins hallucinating. A television set softens into sighing, throbbing, tumescent flesh. A giant vaginal slit opens up in Max's stomach, and agents from the Spectacular Optical Corporation, an eyeglasses company operating as a front for arms merchants, inserts tapes into Max's slit in order to brainwash him. 
As the film goes along, though, it becomes harder and harder for Max, and us, to tell hallucination from reality. It turns out that Professor Oblivion had created the Videodrome signal, which is subliminal and could be inserted into any broadcast. Videodrome gave Professor Oblivion visions of a higher reality, and the visions, he believed, gave him a brain tumor. He was convinced his tumor was not diseased flesh, though, but the new flesh, some new organ that could usher humanity into its next evolutionary stage. Max learns that Oblivion died before he could stop his research partners from stealing his work. Spectacular optical chief Barry Convex inserted the Videodrome signal into footage of real torture and murder, hoping to purge society of those deviant enough to desire such spectacles. Convex programs Max to kill Professor Oblivion's daughter, Bianca, but she reprograms Max and has him kill Convex instead. At the end, Max holds up on a derelict boat and shoots himself, saying, Long live the new flesh. It's an enigmatic line. It takes the form of a political slogan, but its content is politically illegible. What principle does the new flesh embody? Perhaps the new flesh is its own principle, and its only aim are transformation into a riot of glistening, palpitating organs, never seen nor yet imagined within the prosy ambit of the human. Which reminds me, you should join our Patreon. Okay, on with the show. JF is bringing up the rear. Here we go. Oh, microphone. Thank you. That was fast. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a brisk. That's a brisk little brisk. bit of film. They made films with smaller crews back then. I was expecting a longer credit sequence. <laughs> Especially in Canada. And one of the things I love about Cronenberg is that he shamelessly sets his films in Toronto, whereas most, most filmmakers working in Toronto try to pass Toronto off as Chicago or something. There's a lot of Toronto in this. I mean, yeah. for one thing, civic TV is a thinly veiled version of city TV, which still exists. Uh, yeah. But that back in the 80s, I remember from uh, living in Toronto in the 80s, uh, City TV had a sort of reputation for exactly the stuff that Max Wren is about. Sex and violence, but There's, also interactivity, right? Right. Like blurring the line between TV and the public. Um, City TV innovated in various ways. In fact, the, the kind of like mastermind behind City TV was uh, Moses Neimer. Mm. And there's a moment in there where Max Wren is sent to assassinate his partners. Sorry, I'm, I'm super winded because I was <laughs> racing. <laughs> I was racing back racing up to the stage. Um, where uh, he's uh, he's going to assassinate his partners, and and we learn at that moment he's like, "Where's Moses?" And I think that's a thinly that's veiled reference. reference to Moses Neimer. And um, yeah, and City TV was a there was a real presence in Toronto when even when I was there, like early 21st century. You were there much earlier in the old days. 
it just felt totally different from Canadian other Canadian TV, which was very staid. If yeah. you, I, my, in my memory, everything was sort of brown, sepia toned, even though it, it, I'm sure it wasn't, but in my yeah. memory it was. Whereas city TV was bright and neon color. And, you know, they would American. air, they would air like, um, you know, risky films, risque films at night and that sort of thing. But they also had a thing where they called it Speaker's Corner, yep. where people could go in and film themselves. You know, it's the Speaker's Corner after the you know famous spot in London, I think, right? Yeah. Where you could go and kind of... Say your piece. Say your piece, and they would air it. So this is a pre-internet yeah. form of, you know, kind of like public discourse over media. Um, so people often say about Videodrome that like it predicted the internet and so on. It's like, well, actually the thing he did that he was sort of parodying or not exactly parodying, but like riffing off of also kind of was already doing yeah. that. And I'll tell you something else uh, that anticipated the internet and that belonged to this period of Toronto or actually just slightly earlier, uh, Marshall McLuhan. Right. Who has a strong role to play uh, both in his fictional avatar, Brian Oblivion, and also in the ideas of this film. And one of the things I wanted to talk about with this film is like, it just as Masha says to Max, when trying to explain what is so dread and dire about Videodrome, it's not just that the atrocities that we see in Videodrome are, turn out to be real, but also and this is the really scary part. This is a film with a philosophy. Yeah, that's what makes it dangerous. <laughs> and that is true Videodrome as well. This is a film with a philosophy, but, or is that perhaps misleading to put it that way? Because that would make it sound as if it were a didactic film, as if it were cut to fit a set of ideological preconceptions. But I actually think that it's not that at all. I'm very interested in the philosophy it has, perhaps despite David Cronenberg's wishes to avoid being didactic. For example, we were talking earlier today about this idea of the flesh in the philosophy of Merleau-Ponty, a French philosopher, phenomenologist, who in very late in his career, in fact, this book that I'm thinking of called uh, L'Invisible visible, and l'Invisible, so the, invisible, the Visible and the Invisible, this book was published after his death, and it's a book in which Merleau-Ponty, this philosopher, develops an idea that he calls the flesh. And um, he's working off basic phenomenological ideas about the inseparability of perception and the body, of subject and object. So one of the examples in which, one of the kind of like cases where you can see to what extent we air when we too quickly separate object from object is in the phenomenon of self-touching. So if you touch your own skin, you are both uh, feeling and touching at the same time. So you're kind of crossing a weird boundary between subject and object. And Merleau-Ponty makes much of this. And there's a moment in this film where, towards the end, where uh, Max Wren has become an ideological puppet for these you know, clashing factions. And um, he's gone to kill Bianca Oblivion. And uh, she kind of tricks him. She lures him to this corner where he sees uh, Nikki, his girlfriend, on the screen. And suddenly a gun appears on the screen and kind of protrudes from the screen. And of course, he's holding a similar gun or gun organ. 
and the gun in the TV shoots him and he falls, but then we cut to the TV and you see the bullet holes in the screen, right? So this is a perfect example of Merleau-Ponty was saying, it was like, you cannot be the toucher without also being the touched. And Merleau-Ponty posited that the reality was made of something he called the flesh. And so there are many moments in the film where inanimate objects, plastic, kind of leatherette, tabletops, suddenly become enfleshed. Yeah. And I don't know if Cronenberg was like, oh, I'm going to riff off Merleau-Ponty's obscure posthumous publication, <laughs> or whether, whether there's something that we're missing in our modern ideas of media, something maybe even McLuhan's missing, that Cronenberg uh, kind of intuited, which is that when you start playing with images, when you start broadcasting and transmitting images, there's a way in which we kind of make sense of it by just saying, well, it's just an image and I'm a person and there's subjects and objects and things are very separate and I can just turn off the TV. But what if the images we put out into the world were made of, of the same stuff as the world and therefore that they interacted with us in a weird way that we can't really make sense of because of our, perhaps because of our philosophy, but that Cronenberg was sensing and that Melo-Ponce maybe put his finger on in his late work, like literally put his finger on himself and found. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, I mean, that's super interesting. I mean, for one thing, non-duality turns out to have a kind of horrific dimension. Because yeah, this is always a kind have for, always has for me, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's this kind of horror of horror of intimacy with the world, which is one of those things that under ordinary circumstances we might be inclined to think of as the, an ideal kind of mystic union. And indeed, the notion of mystic union as part of the McLuhanite project, and I guess the Oblivion project, yeah. that's kind of part of the deal. Like, recall in that same scene that you were just describing, uh, Bianca Oblivion says, you are the video word made flesh. Yeah. He says, I am the video word made flesh. And he accepts his new role in the new flesh, um, which is all the more powerful for never quite being articulated. It's not entirely clear if by the end there really is some kind of uh, assumption to a new level beyond flesh or whether this is all just some kind of trick. Get him to kill him. Well, something weird happens to Barry Convex, who yes. I think is Northrop Fry. Uh, if you're familiar with Toronto Intelligentsia this time, um, please but, please explain. I have nothing. No, I haven't <laughs> thought this one through. I just I know that McLuhan and Fry did not like each other. They were great rivals. So I figure that if Oblivion is McLuhan, then of course Convex must be Northrop Fry. And we all know Northrop Fry worked with the military-industrial complex to develop missile guidance systems. <laughs> he never did that. Um, but but uh, the, we certainly see that something's happening to Barry Convex, and that doesn't seem to be a hallucination, although it's very difficult to tell by the end of the film what is real and what is not. But maybe that's the new flesh. Maybe this new creature, maybe there's a whole sequel here that could have happened about these, these strange kind of amorphous monsters wandering around and... I think, you know, one wow. thing that's at stake in all of this, both on the McLuhan side, and by the way, uh, you know, we're not just sort of like squishing one of our pet 
philosophers into the frame here. Cronenberg has gone on the record saying that he's read pretty much everything that McLuhan wrote. He didn't attend, he attended University of Toronto when McLuhan was teaching there, but he didn't actually take any of McLuhan's classes, uh, but nevertheless deeply influenced by him. And, you know, one of the basic ideas of McLuhan is the idea that technology is the extension of a sense. And so technology for him isn't just stuff with wires. Um, like, you know, shoes are an extension of the, the foot. Um, you know, clothing, extension of our skin. Uh, the TV, the extension of our eye. And, you know, you were saying a moment ago, like we have this way of thinking of like thoughts and images as being sort of separable from ourselves. And indeed, that's the the reason that's given by Max and by any number of commentators who would defend Videodrome or similar films that are full of very disturbing imagery um, from the charge that this is like pernicious, this is bad for society, by saying, well, you know, uh, they're, 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 those are just imaginary. and they, Not real. Yeah, they don't have bearing on reality. But from a kind of McLuhan-ish perspective, the kind of easy dualism between human beings and their tools and their technologies and their extensions, uh, that doesn't really hold that the technologies become what we are. And Cronenberg actually said in this one interview I read today, um, he was like, you know, I bet we couldn't even mate with human beings from a thousand years ago. Right. It's like, I bet we're a completely different species biologically. I mean, I don't know about that, but like his point was, he was like, it's vain to think that there's some kind of division between human beings and their technology. The technology is what we are as we create technologies, as we create further extensions of ourselves. Like actually the film kind of shows us that when that scene where Max has the gun and we see these spikes being driven into his flesh and the, like the gun becomes an- A literalization of Chekhov's gun. It's like this gun <laughs> must go off. It will at all costs. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But you know, this this idea of um, is like the gun is not separate from Max Wren. It's like it's part of him. That's a and a line that's repeated verbatim uh, twice. Uh, the television is the retina of the mind's eye. If you take that literally, you're like, oh, the television is actually part of your biological operating system. It's as much a part of you as your actual eyeballs. The fact it's outboard, make that it's it's a separate thing. It's like over there and I'm over here is really a matter of um, just a, it's a minor distinction. Yeah, yeah. And you can see maybe we look at it now and it all looks very clunky, the cathode ray and all that. And to us, it looks clunky, but it only looks clunky to us because we have these appendages now that uh, yeah. are essentially parts of our bodies and that pretty much show how profoundly prophetic this film was. There's a book by um, Paul Virilio, who's a French theorist, and he wrote a book right at the end of the 20, 20th century, like 1998 or 99. It's a book called The Information Bomb, and it's a collection of essays, and it, on several occasions in these essays, he's basically saying, he's like, you think this is bad? You just wait. Everything's going to go digital. Within 10 years, all this stuff that we're talking about, so he's he's not referencing Videodrome, but certainly he had a whole philosophy that he called dromology. So drome, dromos being the Greek word for speed, I believe, so speedology. He thought that technology had to do with acceleration. Accelerate, and he applied it on, in every possible domain, in war, media, 
communication and all that. But uh, on several occasions in these essays, he says, yeah, this, this is all going to go digital. And when it goes digital, it's essentially the same. It's essentially analogous to, you know, going public with the Videodrome signal. That's how I read Virilio's prediction. And if you see what happened, you know, in the next 20 years between like 2000 and 2023, uh, it's, it's, it's almost banal now to point out that these technologies somehow extend our nervous system. Right. Uh, there's a moment in the film where Oblivion says, uh, this is not my new name. He's like, obviously Brian Oblivion is not my new name. It's my television name. Soon everyone will have a television name. A name that was excites the cathode ray or something like that, <laughs> and uh, that's exactly that's an internet handle, you know. That's um, so it's a very prophetic movie uh, in many ways, I think. But it also, if you really sit down on these notions, this kind of like technological non-dualism, where what the human being makes this um, kind of this. Uh, um, I don't know this, like nimbus of technological extensions that surrounds us. It leads to some despairing places that I think are still kind of hard for us to take on board. Like for example, thinking about um, the climate, climate crisis and thinking about uh, something we've talked about on our show a bunch of times. Like it turns out and becomes clear now, like after a hundred years of the internal combustion engine, what was the internal combustion engine? It was actually a machine for changing the climate of the planet. And if we are thinking about our technology as not as something over there on the other side of the footlights, but like a, an, an extension of ourself in a kind of li almost literal way, um, as something that we make the way bees make honey, the way plants give off um, oxygen, it's just something we extrude. Then from that point of view, it's not just that the internal combustion engine is a machine for making uh, the climate change. Human beings are a machine for making internal combustion engines. And yeah. from this point of view, this entire apocalyptic threat is simply the fulfillment of the human being. And that is a disturbing and subversive thought yeah. still. So as, as much as it is, does feel a little hacky to be like, oh, Videodrome predicted the internet or whatever, uh, nevertheless, I think that some of the implications of it are still, you know, like as yet undigested and perhaps undigestible. Yeah, there's a techno-fatalism that you might want to, you might feel tempted to derive from the film. I don't know what Cronenberg would say about that. I, I do think it's a nightmarish idea. I think, th I think the basic idea that humans secrete technology uh, is an absolutely nightmarish idea that I don't think we should we should take on without really knowing what we're without doing. a struggle yeah we should fight that idea as much as possible um, that's funny I'm doing this course right now called uh, art uh, in the age of artificial intelligence I'm thinking a lot about machines and one of the insights that I'm proffering for what it's worth is that you can't really subsume or assimilate technology into an evolutionary scheme such that you might say, well, technology is just what humans do the way bees, for example, make beehives. Because, and and who, who comes to our rescue here? It's Stanley Kubrick in 2001, our famous, the scene we keep going back to. There seems to be an imaginal leap that's required to make a tool. Tools don't grow out of the ground. Tools don't, there seems to be an intellectual, a kind of, in, uh, an 
an intelligent act that needs to intervene before a tool gets made, which means that there's an, an acausal leap between a, a human body and a human body with a tool, with a hammer. And to me, that means that we have to be responsible for our technology. So that's the way I protect myself from this kind of non-dual, fatalistic, we just have to go with it. So our choices in the film become like either a technocratic police state, spectacular optical with the eye, it's very cool. Um, and uh, they make, I love this, the technocratic ethic. Like we make uh, eyeglasses for the third world and we make um, missile guidance systems for, for NASA, for, not for NASA, but for NATO. That's our, that's our first choice. Or the new flesh, which is essentially this Dionysiac transformation of the, of the body into what looks like an amorphous jelly. Yeah. Um, and, and it just, it, yeah, you know, door number one, door number two, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a way, maybe Cronenberg's saying, maybe there's an alternative to this. I don't know. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of scary, yeah. You know, I feel like this film is, it's neither optimistic nor pessimistic. Yeah. Uh, any more than a dream is either right. optimistic or pessimistic. And I mean, there is a kind of deep uh, surrealism, like a surrealist charge. In there this is. Film. Yeah, there is. There's um, there, this, um, this interview, I can't remember the interviewer, but we'll put it in the show notes, has this really interesting passage about like violence and gore. And one thing about this film is that uh, if you think about it, actually, it's not that gory it's certainly dis it's it's certainly uh, uh disturbing but in terms of i don't know quantity of blood and oozing viscera i mean you know i don't know it's pretty i've seen worse i've seen worse yes it's not the worst that's but it's pretty thing, gory <laughs> but he cronenberg made a really interesting point about violence that he's like you know a lot of violence just isn't that interesting so for instance at the final death in this is, of course, Max shooting himself in the head, but the screen goes to black the moment that he pulls the trigger. We've already seen it, that very scene before, but with this kind of phantasmagoric kind of conclusion, the TV explodes and what looks like- Gore comes out, yes. <laughs> yeah, and like massive, but abstract. It's gore, but like, TV gore, like the, the, the guts of the television. It's not, yeah. it's not recognizable. It's recognizable as viscera, but it's not recognizable viscera. Yeah. Um, it's some kind of fantastic substance. Some kind, well, it's, it's the flesh. flesh, yeah. And, you know, Cronenberg was coming, he was like, a lot of time when somebody just dies, like somebody gets shot in the head, um, I'm not going to show just like somebody being executed by like with a bullet to the head, but like, because you don't need to see that to know what it is. So I can just allude to it. Like, you know, the screen going black when uh, Max Ren pulls the trigger. Um, he's like, I want to show you the stuff that I, that I can't just describe to you that I have to show it to you. This was, this is what makes Cronenberg such a, a powerful, brilliant and also somewhat disturbing to me filmmaker is that he he took a page from the book of the Marquis de Sade, right? Mm. Like what he's doing is working, he work, he sees violence as a mathematical affair. Just in our last show, oh, it came out today. Um, I read a bit from Jean Cocteau's uh, Infernal Machine, his play, and there's a, there's a moment where Cocteau's, one of his, well, the, the voice in the play describes the tragedy of Oedipus as uh, the most uh, perfect, 
machine designed for the mathematical annihilation of a mortal. And sometimes I find that that has a Saudian kind of ring to it. And there's something about Cronenberg's way of approaching violence. Think about the fly mm. or crash. Um, the way that he sees violence and almost a kind of he has a kind of theorem that he's trying to observe, uh, to apply, and his body horror is a very detached and aloof and clinical, which makes it all the more disturbing. But at the same time, uh, maybe a little easier to watch because it feels so distant. Is that what you're getting at? It feels a little bit. No, not exactly. What's interesting to me about the violence in Videodrome is that it's really abstract it's like vi it's like I mean. it's like impossible violence or violence that has a kind of um i mean it doesn't pertain to actual things that happen to people you know what i mean yeah, like the, the like the the stomach slit or whatever like those are there are analogs to that which of course will you know readily occur to you in watching yeah. this film <laughs> Um, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and likewise, like the, the gun hand, this new organ that's sort of like, you know, you know dripping and glistening. Um, and it really looks like an organ while at the same time looking like a gun. On the one hand, that's in dialogue with stuff that we can recognize, but it's like in a dream. Yeah. Where... It can be deeply disturbing, but like disturbing in a way that is, it isn't like, um, yeah, it isn't like realistic violence. It's like a dream that like for me to convey the atmosphere of the dream, I have to describe this stuff to you. Um, I can't just say, and then, uh, and then the guy was shot in the head. I mean, I can't, I mean, like stuff like that does happen, but the thing that Cronenberg wants to show you is the stuff that you would have to like, kind of like get deeply intricately involved in trying to explain it. And even then somehow the, the horror of it would escape you. And by the way, I want to ask you a question. Is this film scary? Scary? Yes. Um, so I want no. to think about this as a horror film. No, it's not. I, does, who like? Let's get a show of hands. Who found it scary? Yeah. yeah fair enough. Yeah. Okay. So if you, I, I don't know if scary is the word for, I would apply to any Cronenberg film. Um, I would definitely put him in horror, but it's not. It doesn't. Um, there's something so. Th I think you're right. So something so abstract about his films, in a way that I find doesn't induce fear in me. But then what does it induce? Like I was thinking a lot about this, like what, why is, like, why is this a horror film? I feel like if very, with very slight changes, it could have been like an art film or like a surrealist film. Yeah. It's sort of like thinking about different genres of literature. What's the difference between weird, liter weird fiction and horror fiction or science fiction or fantasy? And a lot of the time it's a matter of emphasis. It's all sort of within a kind of speculative fiction domain. But you know, you think of like, well, what's horror about? It's about fright. And sure, there's a lot of things about this film. It's like hard to watch, a lot of sinister uh, things in it. But like, as a horror film, what kind of emotions is it evoking? What's it? doing to us? How is it horror? Like it said, with a, a slight adjustment, this could have been um, like an art film, uh, like a surrealist film, um, probably for like well, a little bit of less blood and a little bit less, you know, like overt sexuality. 
But it wasn't just adding uh, a little bit more blood and a little bit more like sexual violence that turned it into a horror film. No, th there's a dimension of the horror genre, which I think is less connected with the terror part of horror and more with the disgust part of horror. So horror is kind of a weird hybrid term, which kind of bridges mm. fear and disgust. So I think that he goes, obviously leans heavily on the disgust side, but what is it that makes disgust an interesting affect for a horror artist, filmmaker? And I think it's the physiological aspect of it. Exactly. I think, I think Cronenberg is very much, very like, like uh, I was going to say Shakespeare, but I meant Hitchcock. Like Hitchcock, Cronenberg is very interested in the physiological dimension of cinema, how it affects the body, yep. not just the body on screen, but the body of the viewer, right? Exactly. And again, that's yes. again, that kind of um, what uh, Merleau-Ponty called chiasm, this kind of intermingling or interweaving of subject and object. That yeah. When you see something happen to a body, like body horror, on a chrono, in a chrono film, you're experiencing that a little bit in your own body, right? And that's, yep. the, that's the revulsion aspect of, of horror that I think is he really uh, leans on. Yeah. Exactly. This is exactly where I wanted to go. So I was when I was watching this film, I was sort of thinking back to a conversation that you and I had with our friend Connor Habib. Um, who has an excellent podcast against everyone with Connor Habib. And um, now Connor used to be a adult video performer. And now he's a podcaster, novelist, marvelous novel, Hawk Mountain. You should run out and buy it and read it. Um, but he has some very interesting things to say about sort of genres that always tend to be relegated to sort of the critical basement. Um, and porn, obviously, is one. And horror is another. And he suggested, if memory serves, that it's because they they share something. Actually, it's something you said to me when we were walking over here. You were like, horror, you can just mess with people. You know, it's a genre. It's like it's it it almost uniquely allows you to mess with mess with people. When we say mess with people, what does that mean? Okay, I'm going to return to that idea of like that breakdown of subject and object. Um, one thing horror can do is something that sort of porn can do like pornography it's all about the excitation of a sort of sexual response right um just as nikki says like oh yeah you know she, when she's over at max's place for the first time you got any porno you know yeah. and it's like because she wants to um she wants to change her whole emotional physical ex state of excitation like so porn is a genre that affects actual physical transformation in the, the, the recipient, the viewer, the recipient. Um, it's not just like something over there that I'm like not involved with, right? And I think Connor's point is horror does something similar. It's like there's a kind of intimacy in horror, the way it arouses like physical responses, like disgust or, uh, I remember when the, the, the Exorcist was big in the 70s. I was a little kid at the time. Yeah, but, very little kid. But I remember this was like a playground conversation. Yeah. Um, like, I heard that they have paramedics stay at every theater where they're showing The Exorcist yeah. because of all the people who like flip out and they have to carry them out of the theater. I don't know if that's true. I heard later that there, is that, was that true? Did that actually happen? I, I think that was true. I, I know that it happens occasionally that a horror film comes out and does that. I remember one of my favorite films and I don't recommend, 
I don't recommend it to anybody, um, but I do recommend that if you do start watching it, you got to watch it to the end. You can't stop halfway. It's called Martyrs, a uh, French horror film. And um, they had like, uh, people had to be carried out of the screening. So I know it does happen. And yeah. I watched The Exorcist just a short while ago with my 12-year-old who was always told that when she turned 12, she could watch The Exorcist. So she's actually, actually, no, to, in, her, in my defense and hers, she waited till she turned 13. Uh, and then uh, she turned 13 and we watched The Exorcist and um, yeah, she was quite shocked by that film. Yeah. <laughs> Despite the decades that have, you know. Uh, so I, think, I, don't, I wouldn't be surprised if they had some, they had to carry people out. Yeah. You know, the Bela Lugosi, when they came out with the first Dracula movie, like people would faint and stuff just with his seductive glare. It was too much for people. Today looks hilarious, but yeah. But you know, whether or not, I mean, and The Exorcist, I actually, I can confess I have never seen The Exorcist, but. We're going to edit that out. But, <laughs> but uh, I understand it's a very frightening film. And so very good. It, I find it fails at the worst moment, at the critical moment with the green puke. It just, um, suddenly it just starts to get a little silly towards the end. But till then, it's, it's got actually the most horrific scene, and this is relevant, the most horrific scene in The Exorcist, in my opinion, is when they don't know what's wrong with her, right? Because the little um, Linda Blair, the character, her name's Regan. Her mother uh, does not have any religious faith. She doesn't believe in demonic possession. Neither do her, does her doctor. And so they're sent for tests. And so she's sent to get a spinal tap done. And Regan gets put into this device. And it's like, you know, late 60s medical technology, really bulky. And, and, and then they put the tap in her spine. It's absolutely horrific. That is the scene that I cannot watch. Hmm. So it's not the flipping head and the levitation, but the scene where it's like pure clinical science that refuses to believe in anything but matter. That to me is the real horror of the exorcist. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But, it's, but like regardless of whether the emotional affect, like the signature affect is like anxiety or fear or disgust, or whatever, it seems to me horror is regularly doing this thing where it is breaching visceral it's right. visceral this is breaching whatever kind of membrane we have we customarily uh sort of extend between ourselves and the things that are coming in horror is invasive in this kind of unique way this brings me to another idea I wanted to bring up, the, the mention of the visceral aspect of horror, because we just did a seminar yesterday. Well, Phil is, um, is doing a course here at Bloomington on music and the esoteric. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and I had the honor of being part of a, of a session. We talked about Plato's Timaeus, and it's a really fascinating text. Uh, but there's one bit, uh, and it comes up elsewhere in ancient literature, where Plato is talking about how the gods created the human body. So I will differ with you on this point. I don't think the television is an extension of the eye. I think television is an extension of the liver. Explain. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, at one point in the Timaeus, Plato is talking about why the gods designed the liver. And um, it's very, very interesting. So the liver is actually part of the cognitive apparatus for Plato. It's part of our, it's actually where the imagination resides. The liver, as we all know, has a, sh a shiny, smooth surface. Uh, and we, 
most of us, you know, we've all heard of Herispis, you know, where they used to practice, they used to cut and open an animal and the diviner would take the liver out and read the patterns on the liver of a calf or a sheep. And for Plato, the liver is essentially a kind of screen on which the images of your dreams and phantasms are imprinted. So the liver is literally, for Plato, a screen. Of course, he had no idea what a screen was. He knew what reflective services were. And he thought that the liver was the place where your dreams left an imprint, where your, where your dreams were shown to a certain extent, and phantasms appeared in your visions. And so the liver is visceral, the visceral part of the human mind. It's the unconscious. It's the instinctive drives. It's your dreams. It's the, the visionary part of you, the imaginal part of you. And so uh, Plato has advice. It's like, if you, you want a healthy liver so you can have like prophetic dreams, but if you waste your life watching, you know, I don't know, like bad media for Plato or having horrible dreams or dark fantasies, then your liver will shrivel up and it'll be useless. So like a healthy liver and a healthy imagination go hand in hand. And I just found it funny that when Max Wren becomes an ideological puppet in the film, it's in his stomach, not in his head, that the slit opens. Mm. And it's in the liver area that he puts the gun and, and they, they insert the tapes. It's this, this lower mind. And maybe, maybe the film adheres to a kind of traditional separation of reason and the unconscious to the extent that uh, Max Wren's attraction, business attraction to... Uh, this dangerous media actually ends up uh, allowing the media to kind of bypass or override his rational faculties and make him into the ideological puppet that he becomes. Because one of the things that's so funny about the film, I think, is the way that he flips back and forth between these two factions at the end. He just needs to be told, He's, you know, now you're going to do this, and he goes and does it. And it, that's a strangely prophetic thing, too, like the influence of media on thought and on political belief, right? Anyways, I'm, I'm straying, but the liver, the liver is the television, I think. If memory Straight. serves, or maybe I just got this wrong, that for Plato, the liver is the more rational part of the less rational part of the body. Perhaps, yeah, maybe so, he goes so, that granular. Yeah. So it's like the stomach. We can expect no intelligence or good sense from the stomach. No, the stomach would just be pure instinct. Yeah, yeah. and the and the intestine. Uh, yeah, but the, the liver has images. Right. Yeah. And it's like it still share has a share in this lower nature, but it also kind of like rides herd on. Yes. Prophets have healthy livers to Plato. I mean, this is a kind of an interesting thing about like Plato's um, schema is that there's still a place for the irrational, like his whole thing about divination, uh, for instance, where he says, in effect, like, well, divination is irrational, but there's a rational way to manage the irrationality. So he it's an enigma and that it needs to be interpreted. Right? He makes a distinction between the oracle, which is the person who goes into a kind of a divine frenzy. Uh, and he's like, well, they, 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 they're in a state of unreason. They don't know what they're saying. And uh, we might analog, analogize that to, you know, like a tarot deck, like the actual business of uh, putting down cards. You're just letting chance do its thing. And that for... Plato is like an eruption of certainly something not assimilable to reason, right? But then the person who reads the, those traces, those irrational traces, has to do so in full presence of mind. And so he actually has this sort of place for divination, which he has few good things to say, except to say that there is a way in which, like, 
it's it's he doesn't say this, but you could say it's almost like a microcosm of like this interplay between uh, reason and unreason that is one of the most interesting features of his cosmology. He says that he says that a dreamer should not interpret his or her own dreams, but you need a diviner to come in and interpret um, because the dreams are so enigmatic and so personal and so so messy that you need someone who's specialized in that. Which, extending this to means that Cronenberg is not the person to ask about this film, but we are. We are the person. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, the... I, I mean, I guess I'm going into this, yeah. like, sort of diving into Timaeus, which I didn't think we were going to talk about the Timaeus tonight, talking about Videodrome. But it kind of seems like in some way, I mean, this is actually an icily intellectual film from a certain point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, it, Like I said, it has a philosophy. It's very intelligently put together and it views its subject with a, like a cold and some and sort of distanced eye like a clinical eye yeah and it it's a, in its way a very rational film it's a rational film about something that is completely unamenable to to, to reason it's very freudian in that way isn't it yeah you know, i've always loved the way freud is very rational about very irrational things and I know that Cronenberg's a huge admirer of Freud. In fact, he made a film about the rivalry between Jung and Freud called The Dangerous Game? Dangerous Mind? Dangerous Method. Dangerous Method, thank you. Uh, Dangerous Method, which was what you know psychoanalysis was called. And uh, he sides with Freud in that. And in, in the interviews, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm on the Freud team. I'm not a fan of Jung. Um, so maybe it's the rationalism of Freud that he likes. Maybe there's Cronenberg, I think, tends to be a very rational filmmaker, and that's part of what makes him so intriguing because he's dealing with stuff that's not that amenable to rational analysis. Furthest um, thing from it. Right. And he's, he's aware of that, but he keeps making these films trying to crack something that, you know, can't really be understood fully. It's kind of an admirable thing. Yeah, so we have so we're left with this enigma at the end, the new flash. Long live the new flash. I've been I've been saying that to everybody this week. Yeah. <laughs> Just like that's you know, like going to bed the other night and I whisper in my wife's ear, long live the new flash. I love that scene where Bianca Oblivion gives him his orders. I find that actress is phenomenal. Oh, she, the way she says it. Death to Videodrome, long live it's these factions. I love this too. This is so cool and prophetic on this new technology emerges, right? This, this Professor Oblivion and his partners come up with this signal that creates a brain tumor and, and basically precipitates a series of changes by which the human being becomes some new species, or at least that's what they think. And his partners decide to steal the technology and use it in order to red, rid North America of sexual deviance so we can create this presumably quasi-fascist state of like purity and all that. And so you have a, an Apollonian Dionysian kind of split there, right? Where you have the Apollonian spectacular optical that's trying to use this for power and control. And then you have Oblivion, who's the more, I guess, idealist one who wants to transform the human into something new. And it's really weirdly parallel with, you know, a lot of the technologies that are now used for as a part of the huge control apparatus of our times were initially developed as kind of utopian, liber, you know, emancipatory technologies. And the way those things turn around, and he's looking at that in a very interesting way. 
Utopia is an interesting word to invoke and perhaps unlikely word to invoke in this context. Um, the cathode ray mission is one of my favorite details in this. One thing, we, like JF and I have been hanging out and talking a little bit about some of the stuff around the film. And one thing that we've been talking about is how, you know, large cities are like palimpsests. They have multiple kind of cultural strata, or you might think of it as like a sedimentary um, geological formation, where you have uh, eons of sediment, silts, and, and, uh, and little marine microorganisms and, and whatnot. And you have simultaneously these different kind of strata, strata these layers. And in Toronto, when I was living there in the 80s, on the one hand, there was this kind of like neon lit, very bright, very now, felt very American after like sort of sleepy old, you know, TV Ontario, where like I said, I just, in my mind's eye, everything is sepia. It felt very different. And there was this kind of vibe in Toronto at this time, this kind of electrified, very modern vibe. But then at the same time, you also had the kind of remnants or some strata lower down of like, the high countercultural moment, that kind of um, Yorkville before, yeah, yeah. York, Yorkville before it was developed out of existence, and and some of the backwash of a kind of countercultural utopianism, and there's just that scene in the when Max goes and is working his way through the sort of maze of little cubicles in the cathode ray mission mission yeah. that just had this feeling of the kind of drags of a kind of countercultural utopianism where you had on the one hand the vi sort of visual signifiers of a mission so like you know trays of food being passed out to indigent people and you had little cubicles set up with you know fabric fabric screens but all painted with graffiti and you had this sort of like weird jumble of like old lamps and of course TV sets uh, folding chairs and some incongruous bits of like sort of fussy early century things, all in this like old and somewhat ecclesiastical building. And that sort of feeling of, uh, it's almost sort of reminiscent of like Bologna and Delaney's Dahlgren. Dahlgren, right. Um, where you have an attempt to imagine a future. In this case, it's Brian Oblivion's imagined future where human beings will attain a kind of redemption by being plugged into the world circuit board. Yeah. This utopian idea that what all of the, the indigent and the, the forgotten and neglected of society, what they lack is uh, this kind of direct connection, you know, shunted directly into this kind of world electronic neural net. Yeah. Um, a kind of weird uh, idea that is generative of a utopia that was a, that never arrived, a kind of um, weird inhabiting a temporal zone that it feels quite old, like something from the '60s, but at the same time imagining something very futuristic. Yeah. Yeah, I think that even at that time, he didn't make any efforts to make any of the technologies he was exploring look ultra-modern. It could have looked a lot more high-tech than it did. He wanted it to, to look a little shabby, I think. And I think there's something about Toronto specifically that's relevant here. Um, 
we both live there. I don't know if you've been there. It's a very strange city. It's a city with no, for example, uh, very few or no um, heritage or zoning laws that would make it uh, illegal to destroy historic buildings, for example. It's a city that's, you know, there's a, um, there's a famous uh, description of a cityscape in Idoru, I think. It's by William Gibson, where he's describing this, this city skyline changing in real time because the buildings are made of nanotech and the buildings are just reconfiguring themselves constantly. And Toronto feels a bit like that. Every time I go, I'm like, this has changed. <laughs> this is not at all yeah. the same city. And so, and also, the other thing that's interesting about Toronto is the communication theorists that were there. You know, we mentioned McLuhan, Northrop Frye, Walter Ong, et cetera. And so there's this whole kind of tradition of thinking about communications in Toronto. And there's a great video on YouTube of taken in the, at, the, at the heart of the, counter, like the counterculture mo moment in the late 60s. It's a CBC documentary. They're following a guy around Queen Street and he's talking about the hippie generation and the, how the world is changing. And the person who happens to be the hippie they, the CBC picked to talk to is William Gibson, who would later write, invent this idea of like this, of, of cyberpunk and our total intermingling with technology. You know, the whole that whole aesthetic. So there's something going on up there. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> Should we? Take questions? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've gone on way too long, so uh, we're, we're going to do a couple of questions if, it's, if that's okay. Um, does anybody want to, maybe we didn't talk about the thing we should have talked about, now's the time. <laughs> yeah, so I was just thinking while watching the movie, the only other Cronenberg movie I've seen is the new one, Crimes of the Future, and you touched vaguely on like evolution how it's portrayed in this movie is like sort of this like objective like neither good or bad and when i'm watching crimes of the future i'm seeing his take on like the evolution of the human body like they're eating plastic they're living with the destruction is a lot more positive so like what would you necessarily make of that like transformation between these movies i haven't seen crimes of the future yet well, so i can't comment I. Uh, I have a feeling that i it, I, I'll have philosophical differences <laughs> if any of the other his other films have anything to do. But that doesn't mean that I don't think he's, you know, it's not, I don't think he's out to make a point. But I think he's, I don't know. What, what did you think? Of the positive aspect of what he's offering. Yes. Yeah, it seemed like very, yeah, thank you. It's like just in that, in the world of the movie, just like there's people, there's like a lot of plastic waste. Global warming has increased exponentially. And there are people that are evolving organs that allow them to eat plastic. And the government of this world is trying to like subdue that by like removing the organs. And the movie ends on a very like much solid note of let's keep these organs, let's eat plastic. <laughs> <laughs> at least in my interpretation of the movie which well, that's very optimistic i'm yeah, all for if we can do that I, i'm exactly. all for it let's let's grow an organ to eat plastic yes i am i fully agree that's a good idea i you know every time i watch videodrome i get a, probably a little bit too caught up in what i perceive as as the politics of it and politics in the traditional sense so you mentioned you know the fascist bent and i, I every time i watch this i'm thinking about i mean i know that this is the wrong impulse but i keep trying to plug this into sort of modern politics and left wing right right wing and all that and i'm wondering if you think that that is just a completely irrelevant 
way of looking at this movie or if you have any if any, any additional thoughts of sort of the literal politics of, of Videodrome. Well, certainly not irrelevant. I mean, the uh, rant that Harlan goes on um, after, <laughs> I love the, his insincerity, two wonderful years, Max. Um, and then you see the, just the look of loathing and hatred that just almost convulses his features and his subsequent dealings with Max when he tries to give Max a new videotape. Um, and the, the, the gleeful cruelty, he's like, oh, I have a puppet I can play with. Like Harlan in that little speech where he's talking, he, he's, um, he says, you know, we're going to have to be tough. His, that whole ranch just, it is just such a kind of classic fascist statement. Yeah. Always the anxieties around sexuality, um, always the fear, the, the, um, uh, fetishization of a certain kind of tough, hardened, not it, just ideology, but also a kind of fetishization of tough, hardened bodies. Um, and, uh, yeah. That's an, an, a, an intrusion of very recognizable politics. And also Masha, at one point, she doesn't just say that Videodrome has a philosophy. He also, when she's trying to explain... It's more political, it's yeah. It's, you know, how do you say, like, she can't even find the word. It's like political. But you can tell that political isn't quite the right word either. And so I kind of feel like you have these... Um, uh, eruptions of like recognizable real world politics that are impelling characters and this this factionalization, but it's a little bit like violent. What I was saying about violence, like there are some moments where it's just like violence of a sort that you would see in any old movie. People getting shot in the head, um, but then also that kind of violence that's so abstract. It's like the kind of like like horrors experienced in dreams, and likewise, the politics of Bianca Oblivion. And she like gives Max his new charge. You are the video word made flesh. That's a politics, I guess, but a politics that we can't understand. It's it's opaque. It it feels political without having like a political program you could unpack. And it's like a political program explained to you in a dream that may, totally makes sense in the dream, and then you wake up and you try to express it, and uh, and it just and it falls apart in your hands. Yeah, I think I think you could find some progressive, uh, kind of weird, kind of exaggerated, cartoonish, or radicalized progressivism in what they're saying in the new flesh idea. There's a there's a there's um a novel by Michel Houellebecq, who is a very controversial French novelist, but um, called uh, the Elementary Particles. And at the end of this novel, the novel starts in a kind of contemporary setting and then ends in the future. And in the future, they finally find the key to utopia. And what they do is they design a technology that transforms, and this is all in the name of well, the brotherhood of, of man, so to speak, a kind of like a very progressive ideology. The idea there is that everybody's skin is transformed into the skin on the, the glands or the clitoris. So everybody's covered in these like super sensitive, and so people just rub each other 
and like rub against one another and that's utopia because everyone's feeling constant pleasure. And so that's his satirical answer to, so I, I think the new flesh is a little bit like that. Mm. It's kind of like about like the individual, you are the, 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 the video word made flesh. So I think he's, if he's, if, he, if there's a political satire in here, I don't think it's taking a side. I think it's basically showing a kind of monstrosity of control politics, a particular type of politics that I think Cronenberg probably finds distasteful, which is the politics that tries to control what people can say. Right. Politics um, is yet another extension of the human. Right. Yet another thing that we extrude. Yeah, exactly. Another secretion. Anybody? Oh, sorry. I wanted to um, jump back to the midpoint of your conversation when you were talking about the physical effects that horror films can have and pornography can have on the viewer. And to share that, I don't know if you realized it, but you're referencing something that a premier feminist film scholar named Linda Williams has coined body genres. So there's three body genres, pornography, horror films, and what used to be called weepies, which we call melodramas. And the uh, essentially her argument, um, which you all were getting to, <laughs> was that the um, affective circulation of embodied responses to these films breaks down the barrier between subject and object, between the screen and the viewer, and it merges the two into one through physical sensations. Um, and it is, I think, something that is particularly embedded across Cronenberg films, particularly for the same reason you were talking about, JF. There's so much self-touching in Cronenberg um, that it really kind of builds, uh, builds multiple pathways, right, to breaking down those barriers between the embodiment and disruption of subject object that's happening on screen and the disruption of subject object that's happening for the audience as they're kind of in this circular loop. That's brilliant. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that expresses it very, uh, very much more neatly and in a more focused manner than we did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so watching this time, uh, it made me think that Dr. Oblivion reminds me a lot of Robert Monroe and the Monroe Institute kind of messing with like hiding signals and things that try to change how people think and kind of like mind state they get in. Yeah. And I mean, there was a lot of discourse back then about subliminal advertising, a famous picture of some ice cubes that supposedly you could see a skull in and that was supposed to sell whiskey. Um, there was it almost, and actually, it's interesting in the through the Cold War and into the present day, uh, the idea of like fear of mind control and technology as a way of doing of um, doing kind of what we're talking about horror films and porn as doing, having this ability to kind of pass the like the blood brain barrier kind of that's not exactly right, but like certainly bypass your rational faculty yeah whatever membrane we have that keeps us keep that buffers us from the various uh emotional and moral and spiritual etc forces of the world around us becoming like permeable um you know in the cold war after 
the Korean War, there start there was a kind of a panic uh, about brainwashing. I mean, this kind of thing is, seems so obvious to us now. Like, of course, you're going to worry about stuff like that. That it seems weird to think, like, actually, the the stuff about brainwashing that started appearing in the early '50s and is manifested in the wonderfully paranoid film *The Manchurian Candidate*. Um, that was actually kind of a new thing. The idea that there are like lab-coated technicians in offices somewhere who are inventing technology. There were. Well, yeah, I'm MK not saying, Ultra was I'm not saying that it was all just moral panics and, yeah, and imaginings. No, it was real. Um, it, real-ish, I mean, also- It didn't work, though, thank I'm, God. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it, it, the thing is, that there's also a lot of, you, you get the feeling, a lot of experiments that didn't pan out, but the, not for lack of trying. Right, exactly. And so the the, um, uh, the history of surveillance and, and paranoia in the sort of post-World War II era um, is among other things, um, this pattern of um, thinking and feeling around the idea of, yeah, technologies that are penetrative. Yeah. The way like that, that gun, I keep coming back to that gun like growing into his arm. Um, that being actually kind of an emblem of this like anxiety we have of technologies. Like you get a technology, like your nice new phone out of a box, you pick it up, I'm like, oh, I, I consumed. Feeling good, which is which, and is, then imagine like these spiky tendril, like you know, mechanical tentacles, like sprouting out of it and embedding themselves in your arm. Um, I feel like there's always actually a little bit, a, a, a bit of a charge of potential horror in every unboxing video. I agree. <laughs> I, I did you read my uh, my piece on the the box and Hellraiser? It's about that, the ultimate commodity. Like the unboxing is. Is what are you unboxing? You're unboxing the world of the Cenobites. You're unboxing a, a a weird kind of world of jouissance between pain and pleasure. You're you know you, what are you consuming? I think a lot of those MK Ultra you know horror stories we read about what was going on in the '50s, specifically in Montreal. There was one really horrific program there going on for years and years, um, trying to basically create trying to wipe out a human mind and rebuild it. That was the goal. And the CIA was financing research into that area all over the place. Um, sure, those techniques never worked the way they intended them to, but a lot of that stuff has been metabolized. I mean, I've worked in marketing. I, I, I worked in a, a company that did a big immersive environments and I was reading things that were uh, from MIT and the Harvard, there was a Harvard think tank or something. It was just, a lot of the basic ideas and how you design a consumer space and stuff like that is all predicated on the idea of controlling the behavior of a consumer. And certainly this thing that I bought two years, I got tricked into buying an iPhone 15. And um, it's great, it's awesome. Um, is certainly doing things to me. I'm not gonna pretend it's not, you know? So it's not all, it's, it's, it's real shit. It's, well said. So, yeah, that's what we need is the new flesh, I think. Long live the new flesh. Long live the new flesh. We've got more. <laughs> Hello. Wow, this is powerful. Um, this is the first time I've seen this movie. I had no idea what to expect, so I was a little blown away. 
But one thing I keep thinking about is I feel like there was so much subtext in the items in his apartment. So I feel oh, like yeah. I need to like slow it down and like look at everything on the wall and his, and particularly in the kitchen, there's this large black and white, almost pixelated poster taking up like half of the wall. Yeah. Do you, have you noticed some items in particular that you think really kind of give us more of the story? The black paint in that kitchen, it absolutely mesmerized me. The first shot, if, if memory serves, the first shot is of uh, Max in his kitchen. And he it's a low shot. God, I'm not he sure. gets up off the couch and goes to the kitchen, yeah. And he's in this kind of void. I mean, he's like, we know he's in his kitchen. And he's looking at stills from Samurai Dreams and leaving these like greasy red thumb marks on the stills um but every time the camera like looks at him and against this kind of inky void that's what i always think of the profound strangeness of how he's set up in his apartment and that's to me kind of like prefiguring um that moment where we just the bottom drops out and where he's um having sex with nikki and the camera pans back and they're in the torture chamber yeah, except that the wall's black. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and there's, there's all kinds of little kind of Easter eggs in the apartment. There's a, a like a, a ballerina, I think, with Hitler's face. Yes, um, that's right. There are um, all kinds of... I love to look at signage in films. Um, this is not in the apartment, but at one point when, when uh, Barry Convex invites Max Wren to the optical store and then he takes him out to the back and there's one of those there's a poster on the furnace or the kind of water heater behind them and it's one of those uh you know participation remember that like those yeah, ontario how could i forget yeah, it was like this, <laughs> this government program to get people fit and so there were posters everywhere and this one's a french one because they, they of course they had these posters in both languages and it says partageant so it's like let's share and it's the moment where at least you know, they share information. How is it that I managed not to notice? I didn't notice it till this action poster. Yeah. Participation was the bane of my youth. Yes. I was the fat kid slowly <laughs> making his way around the track after everybody else had gone in to get apple juice. I was like, so it was like, sort of like, I think there's an American version of this, like a national program, like president something fitness something or other, sort of like that, a federal program to, to, for, for people to get healthy. And so, uh, you know, you would, they would make you do sit-ups and pull-ups and all this stuff. And like, if you did well, you got a gold patch and you would sew it on your jean jacket and then a little less well than silver and then bronze. And then if you, um, if you wanted to say, well, you tried, you gave them a little pin. And uh, I still, somewhere in my mom's house, there's a box full of those pins. I, had the, I got the pin, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, the posters, yeah, there's, there's more in the apartment. I, 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 I have digressed a little bit from... from <laughs> there's a lot you want to talk apartment. about body horror. <laughs> Participation is... Uh, I, yeah, he was like, well, I, I saw a, an old participation ad recently where this this dad is jogging with his son, and the dad is jo he's wearing jeans, he's jogging and and a harvest gold turtleneck. Yeah, right. It's like it's the most seventies stuff ever. Um, any anyone else? Sure. 
Yeah. Oh, that's a nice surreal touch when these guys are moving these old doors. And uh, yeah, I agree. Doors of perception, the whole Medici, we didn't get into that. The Medici's, the eye is the window of the soul and the Medici's being these Renaissance, this Renaissance family. Of course, that's the age when perspective was discovered, right? In art and developed and so perspective. There's so much going on in this film. There's so much subtext that we can't do justice to it just now, but that's a good, good one. Maybe one more, maybe one more question. Sure. I think it's getting there. Getting a little I think, late. sorry. I think you had described the Videodrome faction within the movie as sort of embodying politics of control that Cronenberg would reject. But I wonder if the Oblivion faction seen, if you saw that as working as sort of a rejection of the sphere of mind control as you were talking about because they were embracing turning human beings into something that was more susceptible to control as what was going forward, even if beyond the point of controlling them to do anything, just mental mutability seemed to be the point. I think so. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think, I don't think there are good guys in this movie, you know? Um, I mean, I, I mean, what, what is it that is offered by the new flesh? So far as I can tell, it's right there. It, it does what it says on the tin oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know that's that's the utopia of the of the new flash is oblivion um and and whether you think that's a positive political move or not i suppose that's uh, a, a matter of personal preference but there are certainly reasons to feel uncomforted by the denouement of videodrome thank you Thank you all. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>